Good morning, everybody. We are finishing up today our sermon series on heresy. And so, yes, in case you all have been like, when will this end? Will it ever end? Today it ends. Emily. No. <laughs> all right, we are speaking about a specific her heresy today called docetism. All right? Docetism. Come on, you can do it. It's not going to do it. It hates me. The heresy called Children's Church, which we often run. All right. Slide change error. No, I understand that. All right. Docetism. Hey, uh, would someone mind pressing buttons for me? Whoever wants to. Thank you. Just in case, because my thing is aside to hate me and not like me. Docetism. Docetism is one of the earliest heresies as well, which we have said about pretty much every heresy we've spoken of so far in the series. And the reason we said it is because, guys, in case you didn't know, there's a whole bunch of them. So it's possible for like 12 to be some of the earliest. And there can be hundreds more afterwards, all right? And as we've worked through this sermon series, some things have been uh, kind of apparent. If you didn't know this from us, we as a church seem to be a church that embraces the concept of mystery. We do not mind the fact that there are things we don't know right? We're not scared of it. It doesn't make us nervous. We don't mind if we don't know things. I am completely okay with the fact that I am not sure how to properly explain or properly understand the fact that God is both three and one at the same time. It is something my brain simply cannot perfectly comprehend, and if I think I can perfectly comprehend it, that means I've fallen into a heresy somewhere, because I've either gone to one side where there are three gods or the other where there's only one person, right? In some way, if you think you understand it, you're getting it wrong. I am perfectly okay with the fact that I cannot adequately explain how God is completely in control of everything, and we still have free will. I don't understand that together. And Jake and I basically fall down on different ends of that spectrum in how we teach. But it's worth noting that we fall on how we teach. We both recognize the fact that, you know what, I cannot purposely and adequately explain that. I am fine with the fact that I cannot perfectly and adequately explain the difference between how we are supposed to show grace on everybody and still call people to sanctification or more Christ-likeness. That is a difficult spectrum. We have to both show perfect grace and perfectly call for people to be like Jesus. And it's hard to do both, right? And we're going to err in one way or another how we do it. There's mystery in how it works together. I'm okay with us having mystery. But... Sometimes we focus so much on mystery that we forget about the fact that there are some things we certainly can know, and that there are things that are certainly important. And then that knowledge can have profound impact on our lives. It can change our lives heavily, right? So, a couple of examples of this. Two that deal with me becoming more of an adult, all right? The first one is this. Whenever I had an apartment at one point, I was sitting down with one of my best friends and my younger brother. My best friend is about four years younger than me. Younger brother's a little bit younger than that, all right? Just a little bit younger than that than me, all right? So they were both in their prime, and I'd hit about 28, 29 at this point. And we were sitting in our apartment, and my roommate just starts going, what is that? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, no, what is that? It's annoying. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. What are you talking about? And he just started looking perplexed and looking around. Then my brother goes, oh, I'm getting a text, and pops out his phone and looks at it. I'm like, what are you talking about? There was no sound happening. There's nothing. You see, my brother had installed an app on his phone that uh, plays a notification at a specific setting 
a specific frequency that young people can hear. Because as you get older, <laughs> as you get older, the range of your hearing gets narrower and narrower. And so what you used to be able to hear, you can't hear anymore, right? And so this was the point where I realized that I had crossed that threshold from young ears to old ears. And now I no longer hear that frequency. And this knowledge actually changed the way I thought about some things in life. And you may think this is weird, but it did. I, for all of my life, had been running sounds and things for church. I had been running the soundboards. I had been setting up the music. And I had always been super critical of the way sound in churches is mixed. I hate it because it never sounded right to my ears. It always sounded really, really tinny and high-pitched. It always sounded like there wasn't enough bass. It was not uh, low enough in its frequency spectrum. It always annoyed me. And then I realized that's because the people who have been mixing the music my entire life are in their 40s, and they need the highs to be louder because they can't hear them as well, <laughs> right? So whenever you hear old people complaining, and by old people I now mean me, complaining that music sounds muddy and too bassy, that's because we literally can't hear the high frequencies anymore. Uh, because we're old. We're old, I'm sorry. But there's another one that is like this as well that I learned about myself. This is a completely different story, but I'm going to tell it anyway because it's fun. I had to think of a, uh, of a way that I can discuss this today and how knowledge changes lives, and I had two main ones that all dealt with me being old. Uh, the second one is also whenever I was young, and I had my own apartment. Uh, but I was going to be moving into a house at some point because, fun story, I was getting married to someone who owned one, all right? Uh, and I was at a friend's house, and if you want to know how long ago this was, we were there for a Halo 2 LAN party, right? You're welcome. That's what we were doing there, okay? And my friend wanted to run and have the game played in different rooms of his house, and I'm like, man, that's going to take a lot, a lot of Ethernet wire to run that, because you're going to have to run around the stairs and down hallways and things and whatnot. And he said, what are you talking about? And he produced a power drill. And I said, what are you doing? And he walked over to the corner of one of his rooms, and he just bent over and just drilled a hole right through the floor into the basement and just ran the wire right through it. And I don't know if I could explain to you how adequately my mind was blown by this concept. <laughs> because growing up, I had always lived in things that didn't belong to me, right? I had lived in my parents' house, wherein if you destroy things, you either fix them or hide them pretty quickly, right? I say that. Oh my goodness, whenever I was younger, we, uh, at one point, whenever I was about five, my sister and I got into a giant argument, and I turned and hit a wall, and I punched a small hole into a fiberglass wall, and our fix for that was to hang a raccoon picture we had painted over it, <laughs> which my dad didn't know about until I moved out when I was 18. And he's like, we can pull this picture down now. And we're like, wait, no, oh, there it is. He's like, what happened? He's like, you didn't notice. It doesn't matter. It's years ago, past statute of limitations. Just ignore it, all right? Anywho, uh, I didn't realize this. I had lived at my parents' house, and I had lived in apartments, which, you know, you, you know, it's like the walls have to remain the right color whenever you're gone, right? I didn't realize that when you own things that are expensive, you can still mess with them. And that blew my mind, and it changed the way I thought about the process or the concept of home ownership at some point. Like, oh, my goodness, I'll be able to modify this guy in whatever way I want. But with that came responsibility of, oh my goodness, I could break this thing, right? And if I break it, uh, it's on me to fix it or pay for it. Or whoever happens to make the most income in the household having to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> right? 
But what I'm trying to get at is this. Sometimes we gain a piece of knowledge that seems like it's common sense or that people should know about or understand, something that everyone experiences in some way, shape, or form, but that knowledge, once we receive it, can change the way we look at life afterwards, right? And I say that because we're going to talk about a heresy today that literally breaks the gospel. If this heresy were true, the gospel would be broken, because this breaks something that we know to be true, and if what we know to be true is wrong, then we are to be pitied beyond all men, as the Apostle Paul says. So next first thing for me. This is docetism. Docetism is a heresy that is taken from uh, a belief that was held in the early 1st and 2nd centuries. And the name of it comes from two Greek words, one being dokian or dokesis. They're two words that are very related. It's just basically different word endings, right? Dokian means to seem, or dokesis means illusionary or imaginary. And what this heresy holds to is that because of how good and uncorruptible God is, there's no way he could actually take on flesh. And so Jesus, whenever he showed up, didn't actually show up in a real physical body. It just seemed like he did or there was an illusion of him being here, right? That is what docetism is. The belief that Christ did not take on a physical body, it just looked like he did. And you may think, well, that's weird. I've never heard of that before. Or maybe you're thinking, that's weird, that's what I believe. Also possible, right? If you're in one of those camps, we'll talk about it in a second. But docetism shows up a lot. Um, it shows up in multiple religions. It shows up in multiple uh, subsections of Christianity today. It shows up a lot in people's arguments for how we're supposed to read the Bible even, right? Thomas Jefferson probably held to a part of docetism. Uh, Islamic teaching teaches docetism at least on the cross. And sometimes we just act like it's the case. So, how do all those things matter? Thomas Jefferson, right? He hated the concept of supernatural things. So at one point, he wrote out his own Bible. And by that, I mean he actually removed parts from the Bible. He just cut out sections. I don't like this part, too supernatural, gone. I don't like this part, too supernatural, gone. I don't like this part, it's weird, gone. Jesus being resurrected, that's ridiculous. That doesn't happen, gone. But these teachings that are cool, these things that are taught, super awesome. I like the words that are said, so I'm going to go with it, Right? To hold to Christ's words without understanding what he physically did is basically a form of docetism because we're acting as if it doesn't matter that Christ was physical. The only things that matter are the words that we have carried down that were given by someone who may have been Jesus or may not, right? That fits into this heresy. Whenever people argue that there is no physical Christ, that it's all a myth, that steps into docetism a little bit, right? And in Islam there is a belief that Christ was a physical person, uh, that he was really good and morally incorrupt, but because of that, he didn't deserve death, and therefore he didn't actually die, it just looked like it. Uh, basically, someone else was transfigured into his place on the cross, and he was taken up into heaven without dying. Uh, and sometimes that person is Judas, sometimes it's other people, right? Uh, basically, the belief that Jesus was too good to die, and therefore it only looked like he did. That is what Islam teaches about Jesus' crucifixion and death. Uh, fun story. Yes, Jesus is very good, like the best. 
perfect, right? Incorruptible is completely true, and yet he still died. Whenever we're reading this, we hit into something that we know. If the resurrection didn't happen physically, if Christ didn't physically live, physically die, and physically resurrect, our faith is meaningless. Don't take my word for it. Let's go to the first verse, actually. It's not the one I'm talking about yet, but this is in 1 John. The Apostle John is teaching, and there's a possibility that he's actually sort of addressing a proto-version of this heresy, even within his epistle of John. Because in 1 John chapter 4, verses 2, he actually says this, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Next, please. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. A, I want to talk about a really quick word there, Antichrist. You may be like, oh my goodness, the Antichrist, I want to talk about that in times and whatnot. Please know, whenever John is talking about Antichrist, he means people who are literally anti or against Christ. Right? No. Okay. <laughs> ah! Anywho, no, he is talking about a spirit that is against Christ, okay? Against Christ. And so, he is arguing here that if someone or something that they are hearing about is saying that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, that is super wrong, and they can worthwhile or rightly ignore that. John himself is already telling his followers that they can ignore people who say Jesus didn't come in the flesh. And if there's someone whose opinion I want to take on whether or not Jesus came in the flesh, it's probably one of the dudes who was there when he was alive and who was there whenever he died and was present during his resurrected time. Like, no, he's like, no, seriously, I saw him. He was there. I poked him. Uh, he's a real dude. Thomas can actually say that. Right? Next, please. That is John. But here's Paul, actually. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, he starts to speak about some important facts of the resurrection. He says this about the gospel. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So he is pointing out pretty heavily that, oh, I'm sorry, for I am the least of the apostles. We'll just leave those there. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. All right? By the grace of God, I am what I am, and by his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Okay? So he's speaking about the fact that the apostles and he have been preaching and carrying on with them the same gospel. And he outlines that very gospel uh, simply. He says, we know that Christ came that he died for our sins, that he was buried and dead for three days, and that he rose again in accordance to the scriptures, right? He holds this to be the gospel. You guys got it? Gospel. Jesus came, lived, died, rose again for us. Gospel. 
You guys got that? Yeah? On it? Good. All right, next. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in life, Christ, we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. They then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjugation under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjugation, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjugation under him. When all things are subjugated to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. But if there are some who say there is no resurrection from the dead, some who hold that the resurrection itself is a myth, that there will not be a time whenever we will be raised again, then we're also saying that means that Jesus wasn't either, right? And if Jesus wasn't resurrected, we're in trouble. Because Paul has been preaching in vain, and our faith is in vain. And in vain means literally without point or worthless. What Paul has been preaching was worthless, and our belief is worthless. And then he says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, we are in trouble because we're still in our sins. Because if you didn't know this, the resurrection overcomes death. It is the resurrection that overcame the power of sin and death in the world. Christ's sacrifice covered over our sins. His resurrection is what defeats sin itself and defeats death itself. He says if there is no resurrection, we are to be pitied among all people. We are to be pitied among everybody because we have put our faith in something worthless. Now remember, Paul says this directly after what he just said beforehand, right? So 15.1 is whenever he says this is our gospel that we preach. We preach that Christ came, lived, died, rose again. And whenever he rose again, he was seen first by Peter, then by the 12, then by nearly 500 other people, and then by James, and then by me. And if you want to believe this, if you want to actually learn about this, if you don't trust it, go ask some of the people because they're still alive. He said some have fallen asleep, ergo died. But he says most are still alive. So he's writing this to an audience that can check his work. Right? I don't know if I believe that. Go ask Peter. I don't know if I can believe that. Go ask John. Go ask Thomas. Go ask pretty much everybody at this point besides Judas. <laughs> right? Yeah. You can still talk to people and ask them. You see, we know some things. We can know that Jesus was a person who actually lived uh, based on a bunch of stuff, but the easiest is just from history. There are writings that speak about Christ 
from right around the time whenever he was alive. The most easiest one that probably people have heard of is a guy named Josephus, who was a writer who was Jewish, but writing on behalf of the Romans by the time he wrote. So he was doubly over a person who was kind of opposed to the whole concept of Christianity, but he still wrote about the fact that Christ existed. He said there was a man named Jesus who was called the Christ. Many said he was a miracle worker. That's about it. He didn't say very much. But you know what? From a source that had no reason to even mention Christianity, that's a pretty big amount. Then there's actually a source from Rome where they're talking about the followers of a person named Christus. They actually got his name wrong. They heard Jesus the Christ, and they assumed that Christ was his name, not his title. So he said, there's this dude named Christus that everyone's following about for some reason, and they say he died and rose again. Whatever. Right? Again, a Roman authority who's just writing about people in the area, who's actually writing about the fact that these Christians are super annoying because they're proclaiming their religion is the only one that matters. <laughs> Like, these jerks just keep talking about this. But they mention the fact that Jesus lived. And you may say, well, that's not a whole bunch of information, but you realize that's far more proof that any individual person existed than basically exists for anyone back then. Who here uh, remembers any common, normal writings from someone that they've heard of from like 500 years ago? No, I can prove it. This is after printing existed, too, worth noting. But even then, you're like, do we have a lot of proof that people really exist in history? Not generally a ton, especially not from 2,000 years ago, before printing happened and before writing was common. And whenever the things that were written on were things that were easy to die. Remember that uh, if you write on paper and you wait 2,000 years, so that paper is usually not around anymore. Right? So pretty much everything that was written back then is still not able for us to read. But it existed. And we have record of the fact that he existed. We have record of the fact that the Gospels themselves are understandable and right in what they teach. Uh, this is usually stuff that's like sideways or things that we don't really have a whole bunch of information for, but we know it. Uh, so, for example, at one point, people got all mad. Uh, historians were very mad that Luke called Pontius Pilate a uh, procurator for Rome. They were annoyed. They said, that's not the right title for him. He never hold that title. That's the wrong title for a person in his area, which they're actually right. It's the wrong title for a person doing what he was doing as a governor of this area. It's not the right title for a Roman official to have. Until they uncovered a brick at the bottom of a building that had written on it that this building was created, or this sidewalk, actually, I'm sorry, this sidewalk was made uh, at the order of the procurator, uh, Pilate. Uh, See, it turns out that once they found some more information of him, he was a procurator somewhere else and then was moved to Judea and still held his old title, even though it wasn't the right one for the area. So Luke used the right wording for it whenever historians were like, nah, uh, and the, you know, Brown was like, uh-huh. <laughs> right? There are thousands and thousands and thousands of little things like this where we can read what we can know to be true. If you want a fun book that actually runs through, there's a book called A Ready Defense by a man named Josh McDowell. It's made to be used to talk to non-Christians about stuff like this, but it doesn't work, right? You can't go and reason someone into believing about Jesus because history is cool. I love history. It doesn't work that way. But what is helpful is for us to learn what we can know and know for ourselves, right? And the whole point of this book is it literally just walks through historical evidence for the fact that the scriptures are trustworthy and that Jesus existed, it's really fun. There's another book called The Case for Christ that does the same thing by a guy named Lee Strobel. 
Again, very useful if you want to know what you can know about Jesus. But while we focus on things that we sometimes don't know in this church and we talk about the mysteries that we hold, it is important to remember what we can know. We know Christ lived in the flesh. He lived perfectly, never without sin. It is proclaimed often and heavily that people could find no fault in him whenever they wanted to condemn him. They would try to condemn him, and they say, but I can't find anything he did wrong, so I can't yell at him too much. But we're still going to try and kill him, but we're mad at him, right? We know that he never made a misstep. Scripture teaches that he was perfect in everything he did, that he lived a perfect life, never once stepped outside of the will of God. He was completely perfect in his life, without fault, without sin, without blemish. We know he died. That one is not a question. It's obvious. He died probably of heart failure, honestly. You're going to have fun with that one because that's what happens when you're crucified. Your body can't actually support its weight, and then it starts to give out. The heart starts to pump harder, and it starts to enlarge, and you start to have your lungs fill with fluid, and you slowly suffocate to death. It was designed to do that. That's why it was made. They wanted to kill someone quickly and painfully. If they wanted to hasten that death, they would break people's legs so that they wouldn't be able to actually lift themselves up off of their arms anymore, and they would just die of heart failure quicker. But Jesus was stabbed in the heart with a spear, and both blood and water came out, meaning it was probably fluid that was pooling around his heart. He died. In the case for Christ, they have a doctor actually walk through and be like, this is probably what he died of, and they list out what. If someone were to be stabbed after that and this was coming out, this is what I would diagnose his death as. Because it's a normal thing to happen in this situation, as far as normal things go for crucifixions, right? Hopefully or luckily, they don't happen very often anymore, right? But he died. We know he was dead. They buried him. And while we may be able to be like, maybe he was okay and just hanging out in there, nuh-uh. That doesn't happen. You don't go through what he went through and then get stabbed in the heart with a spear and then left in a cold, dark place for three days and just walk out fine. Right? Also, the people who executed him, their job was to make sure the people they executed died. As a matter of fact, within the history of crucifixion, there is literally one person we can actually hear of in history that survived a crucifixion. And that was a person who was crucified. It's in Josephus' writings again. He was crucified, and then his order to be crucified was rescinded. And there were three people crucified with him. And the order was rescinded less than an hour after he was crucified. And they pulled him off the cross after less than an hour, and two of the three still died. Like, crucifixion kills people. It was their job. They were good at it, right? He died. There was no question. Then he spent three days dead. They put him in a tomb. They didn't have formaldehyde back then. You can tell when someone dies. Then three days later, he was up and walking around fine. By fine, I mean with no apparent issues with what he had gone through, but while still bearing the wounds of his death. Because whenever he's talking to Thomas after his resurrection, Thomas is like, I don't know if this is really Jesus. But how could this be Jesus? Because if you or I saw someone killed in this manner, and then three days later the dude just walks in, you and I would rightfully be like, wait, no, what? No, hold on, what? No, 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 right? I'm going a little bit into Rachel from Friends, at least. As, as done in 
SNL. Anywho. Yeah. What? No. Uh, we would be rightfully freaking out if we saw someone. And Jesus' response to him is like, no, it's me. Check it out. If you need to, stick your hands in the holes in my hands or put your hand in the hole in my side. Trust me, it's me. Jesus offered for him to touch his wounds, to touch his flesh, and see if he is alive or not. And he did. Jesus came back and he ate. He hung out with his people. He ate dinner with them. He lived with them for 40 days. He was in his resurrection body, but he was still human. He lives. And in his living, he became the first fruits of the resurrection. We all know the story about Adam and Eve and how they died and why they died. Because they chose to disobey God. And yes, they chose to follow a lesser good, but they still chose to disobey. And that disobedience brought death into the world. But Christ's perfect obedience brought life back into it. This is what we proclaim. This is what we believe. This is what we hold to be true. And this is what we will shout to our dying days. And this is what we will revel in whenever he returns. That he lives. And in his life, we have life. So as you walk out of here today, walk out assured of what you know to be true. That your Savior lives for you. In his life, you have life. In his death, your sins have been defeated. And in his coming is your hope. In his return is your hope. We look forward to the day whenever he returns and his kingdom takes over this world completely because his kingdom already exists here, but it will be made wholly manifest when he returns and he retakes his place on a throne. And whenever that happens, the world will be recreated and it will be made to be what it was originally meant to be. We don't hope for a future disembodied heaven. We hope for a perfected earth, perfected by Christ, restored by him. And we'll be able to revel in his glory here. And there will be no separation between heaven and earth. God will reign here and we will reign with him because we will be the ones going forth and subduing creation again. Does this make sense? So there are two things I want us to know about. One, yes, it is good to be able to talk about what we don't know. It's very good to be able to, right? It is comforting to people who have questions if you don't try to give them blowhardy answers. I have no better word for it, right? Uh, you don't just spout things that you think are true but you're not sure of. If someone comes up to me and asks, how is God three and one? I can say, here's the best I got, but it's not all. It's not perfect, right? And they can take more comfort in that than if I'm just like, no, let me explain it to you perfectly. It's like an egg, all right? It's like water. It's like a watery egg. No? All right. Exactly. It gives them more comfort to hear, I don't know in that situation. It is much more truthful for me to be able to say, I don't know how God is glorified through tragedy. Because I don't. Tragedy occurs regularly. And I don't know how he's glorified in it. But he does receive glory in everything. Right? 
And if I try to pretend like, well, it's because it'll all work out for good or blah, blah, like, you know, which is true but doesn't help. <laughs> if I try to make something up for how tragedy is good or brings glory to God, I'm doing a disservice to God and to the person I'm speaking to. I don't have to carry all of the answers, but I should be able to carry some of them. So whenever you walk out of here today, what should you be able to carry with you? And that is what you know to be true, that you serve a God who lives, a God who died for you and lives for you, a God who is perfect, a God who overcame sin and death and the brokenness of the world, and a God who will restore that world to perfection. Carry this with you. This is the gospel. If someone wants to know where your hope comes from, this is where your hope comes from. Uh, my goal today, though, I couldn't find them anywhere. We actually have tracks that talk about the gospel, and I wanted to hand them to you, not to hand to other people, but for you to hear and read and know, so that if someone asks you, you could speak to them about it, right? Throwing a piece of paper at someone is not the easiest way for them to learn about Jesus. It doesn't tend to work. But for you to read and understand it, and then if someone asks you for you to be able to explain it, that's bearing witness to who Christ is, which is what we're called to do. And yet I bet they're in our storage unit. So you don't get them. My apology. I'll have them here next week. And you can take some with you if you'd like to learn about them, okay? We're going to take a moment. We're going to go into a time of communion. And then we're going to worship our Lord, our risen Savior, again together. And then we're going to have another little talk afterwards. All right, not a sermon, a little talk. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for living perfectly, for demonstrating what it means to be a perfect human by your perfect life, for living sinlessly so that you could be a perfect lamb, for dying a death you did not deserve so that we could receive what you deserved which was righteousness before the Father. We praise you for the fact that you chose to taste death on our behalf, though you had no need to do so, because you were the one person who has ever lived who didn't deserve it. And we praise you for the fact that you rose again, defeating sin and death for all time, overcoming the curse of the fall and overcoming our brokenness. We praise you for the fact that you are fixing creation, which we broke. Thank you for that. Lord God, may your kingdom come. May it reign. May you reign. And Lord, may you come quickly and finish your work. We pray this in your holy and matchless name. Amen. We're going to step into a time of communion now, and then we're going to spend some time worshiping together. I'm going to pass it over to Jake now.